And Jesus has been speaking to the disciples in an extended series of lessons in Matthew. Um, and now in of what it means to relate to one another, what it means to be a servant to one another. And now in Matthew 19, he left Galilee, and he's in the border regions of Judea, um, and he's ministering to the multitudes. Um, and in the midst of that, the issue of divorce comes up. And it was hot, it was sort of a hot topic even then. Um, it's, there's evidence that divorce, even then, was sort of at an epidemic proportion. Um, it was not only a, a problem amongst the common folks, but it was also a problem among the clergy, the Pharisees. Um, to be a Pharisee, you had to be married, and yet uh, Josephus, we know, had at least three wives, and so at least had two divorces. And so this was just a sort of, of an issue. Um, it was probably more controversial then than it is today, but it wasn't, the numbers were just as significant. Um, for those of you who don't know, the United States has the highest divorce rate in the world. At present, about 42 to 44% of all marriages will end in divorce. About 60% of all second marriages will end in divorce. And about 75% of all third marriages will end in divorce. Um, it's interesting that almost 50% of people who get married will marry outside of their faith. Will marry outside of their faith, okay? But only 30% of people will marry outside of their political party. There's more conviction about their politics than there is about faith, uh, which I have always thought was sort of an interesting concept. Um, over 50, one in four people are getting divorced, about 25%. In 1990, just 1990, it was one in 10. So one of the fastest groups of people that are getting divorced are people over 50. Um, for the average person that's taking, giving their marriage vows, while you're giving your marriage vows, there's nine divorces that are going on throughout the United States. Um, and the average person spends two years thinking about it. Uh, so divorce has a pretty significant issue in our society. And for anybody who has been divorced, divorce has tremendous repercussions for families. Uh, for, the, for over 30 years of my ministry, it was working in the area of single adult ministry with the vast majority of the people that I ministered to that had been divorced. Um, and so that was what 30 years of my ministry was. And people used to ask me about weddings. And, you know, like how elaborate they were. And I go, really? The majority of the weddings I do are people who have been previously married. 
And, you know, and they're inviting their friends. They're not inviting their parents' friends or relatives, you know. This is their wedding. And so it's not near as elaborate and crazy as first marriages. Um, it, just, it just has a tremendous impact. It just it, it affects every area of our life. Um, and, the, and the repercussions for those who've gone through a divorce, um, finding hope, finding healing, finding reconciliation, finding restoration, finding acceptance. Uh, many times they don't feel like they've been accepted in the community. And I find it interesting because I've read these verses many times and I've, when I was in seminary, we came up with 118 different scenarios for divorce and remarriage. And so in these, just these verses alone, we're not going to come up anywhere with a theology of divorce and remarriage. But that really was the issue that the Pharisees were asking. But what I never noticed before is take a look at verses 1 and 2 in these. And what does it say? Somebody just read that out loud. Somebody, that's anybody. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. So here's Jesus. The crowds are still following him. And what is he doing? He's doing what he always does. He's loving people and he's healing them. Doesn't matter where they've been, what they've gone through. He doesn't ask those types of questions. These crowds are following him, and he's healing them. Now, what you learn right there is that Jesus is immediately loving on the people. And that's what Jesus has always done. He came to love the people. He's ministering to the people. While he's doing that... Somebody read verse 3. Now, try to imagine that. Just try to imagine that picture. Jesus is loving the people. He's healing them. And a group of Pharisees, in the midst of all these miracles, in the midst of all of these teachings, ignores it completely. And instead just comes up for the purpose of trying to test Jesus. Now, I had never thought of that before, but when I read that this time, it infuriated me. If I was Jesus, I would have just probably zapped him with a lightning bolt. You know, really, guys, we're here healing people, and you, you're, you're asking this kind of a question at this point. Um, but I think Jesus just sees these things as great opportunities for teaching. Just for teaching. So he sort of, you know, asks sort of a question that leads into another question. Um, and just says, you know, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So does, at this point, does he even address the issue of divorce? 
No. He's addressing the issue of marriage. He's addressing the issue of marriage. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So here he is. He, he's giving them probably the strictest interpretation based on not the question of is it lawful to get a divorce, but instead, this is what marriage is about. And you, once again, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking how far can I get by with something instead of how much should I love? You're asking where's the escape clause in my relationship so when it goes south a little bit, I can just bail. Because there was two views of, of the rabbinic views here. Uh, Rabbi Hillel said that marriage could be ended and divorce could occur for virtually any reason at all. If you came home and your wife had burnt the toast, you could divorce her. <laughs> I know. It's, I, you're doomed, yeah? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah? Or if you just saw an attractive woman walking down the street. You could go home and get a divorce. You could get a divorce for any reason under the sun. Um, and also notice the phrasing of the question. Can a man divorce his wife for any cause at all? Did you hear that? Can a man divorce his wife for any cause at all? Not can a person divorce their spouse for any purpose at all. It was a man. Because a man needed nothing. All he needed to, to divorce his wife was two witnesses. So I could get Ed and Paul and say, hey, come on over to my house. Gwen burnt my toast. I want to give her a rid of divorce. And that's all I'd have to do. That would be it. Now, if Gwen wanted to divorce me, not so lucky. I don't even know what all you people are thinking at that point. I'm not even going to ask. <laughs> She'd have to file a court case and take it before a judge and prove cause. So the man could divorce his wife for any cause at all. And so here you have some Pharisees that are getting divorces and, you know, going out and getting remarried. And they think that that's perfectly okay. Now, there was another rabbi, um, and I, I'm trying to find it. Anyway, uh, Hamil, who said that the only reason you could get a divorce was because of adultery. Um, but in response to their question, Jesus says, you know, he goes right back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and says, look what is marriage. What did God institute marriage for? And he knows that their whole process of thinking about this is all wrongheaded. 
they're just looking in the wrong places. They're looking for the wrong answers. They start from the assumption that a man has a right by law to end his marriage. And, he, and Jesus said, no, you don't. It doesn't matter what God has instituted. You don't have a right to end. That's not for you to be able to do. Um, the man and his wife were designed to complement each other. When that complement became a covenant couple, a union was formed, and the choice to, to do so involved an intention that once I'm married, I'm not going to go back to being single. So he's just slapping the Pharisees right in the face. And you guys have got this all wrong. You're constantly looking for the wrong thing. You're constantly asking the wrong question. You're saying, what's in it for me? How can I get what I want? How can I live life at the lowest form and be able to please whatever I want to do? And Jesus is saying, you're always asking the wrong question because the right question would be, what would love do? How do I live a life that is so loving to God that it reflects on the people that I live with? And instead of looking for an escape clause, you should be saying, what do I need to do to make sure that my wife or my husband never wants an escape clause? So he's just sort of, you know, blasting the Pharisees. Um, so he instituted marriage to present oneness between a man and a woman. And then he quotes uh, Genesis 1, verse 27, and Genesis 2, verse 24, when he says, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Um, so basically he says to the Pharisees, still, still, you don't get it. You don't get it. And the reason they don't get it is because the Pharisees wanted to discredit Jesus. This was the purpose of the question. The purpose of the question wasn't because I've got this real serious question because I'm dealing with somebody in my synagogue who's going through a divorce and they're really struggling. That has nothing to do with it. The Pharisees could care less about people. All they're caring about is how do I destroy Jesus? How do we destroy Jesus? So that even the purpose of the question was for the purpose of destroying Jesus, to try to catch him so they can discredit him because right before this we know that he's predicted that he's going to be put to death. And so they're just trying to continue to plot his death. So when they talk, then the Pharisees come back to him again. And in verse 7 they give him another question based on Deuteronomy 24. And they ask him, but why then did Moses say, give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And notice the, what they say. Why did Moses say, give her? And in some versions it says, command her. So it's almost like they're saying that Moses was commanding people or demanding people to get divorces. And Jesus explains to them that Moses' statements there were statements which gave permission they were not commands. Um, and that the permission was granted because of certain circumstances. It was a concession. And why was it a concession? Because of the hardness of hearts. And what causes the hardness of heart? Is people who focus on 
themselves and not on Christ to allow Christ to transform our hearts from the inside out. We're still trying to live by a law instead of living by transformation. Living by a law instead of by God's grace. Living by the law instead of the Holy Spirit transforming us through his word so that we can look at others, like he said in 18, to serve one another, to restore one another, to care for one another. Um, and then he goes on to say the violation of the marriage is a violation of the seventh commandment. It's adultery. Now, remember that the Pharisees were very hard on immorality. Very hard on immorality. So if somebody was caught in adultery, what would they do? Stone them to death. So if you got caught in adultery, you'd stone them. So, let me think. If I commit adultery, I'll get stoned. But if I figure out that anybody can divorce their wife just because they think somebody's prettier, I can go get a divorce and I can go marry somebody so I don't even have to commit adultery. I'll just have divorces and relationships. And so that was their exit clause. That was their justification. So they could continue to be hard on morality, but yet permit themselves to commit serial um, adultery by getting divorces. And so they had no intention of trying to say what's best. What's best. But the whole purpose was, how do I get an escape? Um, and so they're constantly asking this one technical question. When can I get out of the commitment I made before God? That's the question they're asking. And isn't that many times the questions that we ask? And it may not be about divorce. But is it about other things? We say, you know, I made this commitment, but how can I get out of it? Uh, you know, I, 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 I was silly when I made that promise. So how do I get out of it? Um, I made a promise to my daughter, which I wish I had never made. <laughs> And it was when I got the motorcycle that I would always wear a helmet. And not only did I make that promise, I told others that I made that promise. And so everybody I ever rode with, whenever I forgot my helmet, conveniently, before I could get 100 yards out of the parking lot, they were stopping me saying, Andy, where's your helmet? And I made that promise. And then when she got married, I said, she said, I re release you of that promise. But I'm transferring it to Gwen, to, to my wife. And she hasn't released me of that promise. And I didn't know you could transfer promises, but obviously you can in our household. Um, but see, how many times do we make certain commitments? Large ones, small ones. And we look for the escape clause and whether or not we have to keep that commitment. And that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing. 
So Jesus comes back. You're asking the wrong question. The question is, what does God intend for marriage to be? And look at the disciples' response in verse 10 to that question. The disciples say, if I don't have the escape hatch of being able to get rid of my wife whenever I want, maybe it would just be better to stay single. Folks, that's the disciples responding to that. That's not the Pharisees. The disciples are thinking the same thing. I've lived in a culture for so long that commitment means nothing. That we can appeal to the lowest common denominator. The people can do whatever they want to do. They're living in Rome, and people were just doing whatever they want to do, and the disciples were a part of that. And they're looking around all around themselves and saying, look at all the people that can get divorced with no issue. Look at all the people that can do all these things. And then he says, no, marriage was meant to be permanent. It's something that God ordained. It's something that God put together. And that no man should, and the disciples are even saying, wow, I've got commitment phobia. You know, it would be better to stay single than to, than to, than to get married. Um, and so it's sort of mind-boggling to see that. So Jesus says, sure. What I'm demanding is no different than what I'm demanding when a person makes a commitment to Jesus Christ. There's no escape clause as a believer. We can't just say, okay, today I'm going to be a believer, tomorrow I'm not. Today I'm going to be a believer, but I don't really have to love others. Today I'm going to be a believer, but I don't have to forgive others. Today I'm going to be a believer, but I'm not going to have to do this. No, there's no escape clause in that. When Christ calls us and we respond, that's a lifetime deal. And if we're starting to look for escape clauses, folks, we're going to look for escape clauses in every area of our life. That I don't have to be serious about this faith thing. I don't have to be serious about loving the body. I don't have to be serious about caring for one another, praying for one another, walking through the difficult times with one another, to restoring one another. I can just take it as I want. And that's basically what they were doing, the Pharisees were doing, but yet they made up laws that justified it. So Jesus says, I'm demanding a commitment. I'm demanding a commitment to you because, and I'm demanding a commitment about marriage because that's what marriage is. It's a commitment. It's a divine contractual commitment to one another made in vows before man and God. And it's hard. It's hard. But he, wants, but he says, I want to tell you that what you have just said is far harder than anything else. To stay single, if you're not called to be single, if you don't feel that that's what you've been gifted to be, or if you, if you were a eunuch by birth, a eunuch by, by um, somebody making you a eunuch, or by choice, you know, that's going to be hard. And that also takes a commitment. Because it takes a commitment to be holy. It takes a commitment to be celibate. It takes a commitment to be responsible in our walk with Christ. It takes commitment to be obedient to Christ.
So now you can decide. And Paul himself had said, "For me, I'd rather be single." Now it's interesting because Paul was a Pharisee. Pharisees had to be married. So there's a lot of theories about how that happened, whether Paul got special dispensation or whether Paul was actually a widow. And some people have given some, some ideas that Paul was a widow. Regardless of the reason, um, commitment is necessary in wherever we are, whether single or married. It takes commitment. Uh, and that's the whole point of what Jesus is saying. And the Pharisees are always going to try to discredit Jesus. What I find interesting is that the same arguments that the Pharisees were giving and how they wanted Jesus to compromise are the same things that are taking place in our society today. Churches as well as society, have lowered standards to the point where things don't matter. And they try to discredit Christianity, not Christians, but society as a whole tries to paint Christianity as intolerant, which makes us confront any society's ills. And as soon as we confront, as soon as we say something, Society then says, well, Christians are all intolerant. Yet the reality is that even Jesus' statement in, about divorce was really showing more love, more acceptance to spouses or to females in that than the Pharisees were. It, it was liberating for them. And if you really understand it, in any relationship, if we're sitting there looking at the other person and not thinking escape clause, because remember, the average divorce, people are thinking about it for two years. For two years before they get a divorce. When I was working in the area of single adult ministry and somebody would come to one of our divorce recovery workshops or come into my office and tell me that they're getting divorced, I'd ask them, how long have you been thinking about this? For years. I'd go, how many people knew? Well, nobody knew. Why didn't anybody know? Well, we were embarrassed. And so I thought to myself, you know what? If three years ago, they had gone to the church and had just been able to acknowledge, this is what was going on in my life. Instead of holding it into themselves, how many of those relationships could have been helped? But because we carry it ourselves, it becomes more difficult. Um, there's more. Um, Jesus basically wants to reshape the debate. The debate isn't about divorce, marriage, and remarriage. It's about marriage. And what are we doing to help promote, heal, comfort, and, and 
guide marriages. If a person is single for whatever reason, what are we doing to promote, comfort, guide, heal, support, encourage them in their life? What are we, the question we need to ask ourselves on a regular basis, what am I doing to show another person the love of Christ? And how do I love others with the love of Christ? It's not just loving them. How do I love them with the love of Christ? Because loving them, from our perspective, can be a whole different tool than the way God tells us to love one another. Um, I think it's also really, really important to know that in all of this, Jesus never addresses issues of shame, guilt. He just shows love. It just shows love. And that's the kind of life that we have to be able to say, take a hard stand about what we are supposed to do and take a harder stand on how we are to love people. Because Christ forgave and loved everyone regardless of where they've been. Um, once again, it just blew me away but I'm thinking, here was Jesus in the midst of a healing ministry, and people are out there to test him, and to catch him, and to kill him. Ask yourself, in every situation, what would Christ do? And not only what would Christ do, if you understand what Christ would do, you ask yourself, what would love do? And how am I going to show the love of Christ to the people that are around me. Stop looking for escape clauses to any one of our commitments and instead start saying, how do I live in such a way that nobody wants an escape clause? You know, how do I live in that way? Father, I just thank you for this opportunity. Lord, we know that Whenever people are gathered, people may be struggling in relationships. I would just need to ask a question. What would love do? People are in irreparable situations um, where marriage vows have been so grossly broken that the opportunity for reconciliation is not there. But we still need to ask, ask the question, so what would love do? Um, whatever situation we're in, whether single, divorced, married, happily married, all of us should be asking the question, what would love do in this situation? Um, and so, Father, we just lift this day to you and trust that you will work in each of our lives that we as a church can communicate forgiveness. We can communicate your grace. We can communicate your healing. We can communicate your love. And we could represent you in such a way that people hunger for the hope, the healing, the guidance that you provide so willingly to anyone 
who surrenders their life to you. And help us to remember that the church is about putting people's lives back together, making disciples, and going forth being a witness and a light to others. Again, Lord, help us to always be asking, what would love do in this situation? What would you do in this situation? How would you approach people in these situations? We thank you, we praise you, and we ask these things. And our Lord, Savior Jesus Christ, and all God's people said,